It's called the Forgotten Battle because of all that was happening in the Guadalcanal campaign. This quote-unquote little behind-the-scenes battle was raging separately and became a race against the clock, the weather, and the might of who could keep who away from Midway, away from Japan, and away from American soil. This is the story of the only land battle that touched American soil during World War II, and it all started when the Japanese troops dared to raise an imperial army flag on the village of Attu, Alaska on June 7, 1942. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Military historian Al Hemingway writes, quote, Japan sent bombers to raid Dutch Harbor located on Unalaska Island in June of 1942. Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto, commander of the Japanese fleet, decided to attack Dutch Harbor to convince the United States that the Japanese main thrust would be against America's west coast. He wanted to lure U.S. ships from Pearl Harbor. Then the wily leader would strike at Midway in the Central Pacific, his objective. Yamamoto figured the Americans would rush to defend the Aleutians, realizing it was a feint the U.S. fleet would steam back to defend Pearl Harbor. Then Yamamoto would spring his trap and intercept the U.S. armada at Midway and annihilate it. All of this elaborate planning might have succeeded if it were not for one major flaw. U.S. naval intelligence had broken the Japanese naval code, and the American defenders were ready to defend Midway. End quote. Yamamoto wasn't even really thinking about overtaking Alaska. His plan was to maintain a military presence on Attu and Kiska, two of the Aleutian Islands, and keep the Americans from invading the Japanese homeland, especially after their major defeat at Midway. And soon, the unassuming islands of Alaska were embroiled in a bitter battle, because whoever controlled the sea lanes between the small Aleutian Islands and neighboring Russia controlled the northern Pacific Ocean. Retired Admiral James S. Russell would tell the Alaskan State Archives, quote, We had information that the Japanese would probably hit us in the summer of 1942 in the Aleutians, end quote. Alaska at War documentary says, quote, The Japanese strategists knew they could not win a long war against the industrial might and vast natural resources of the United States. So Japan's entire military approach was designed around quick, decisive strikes. Japan wanted control of Asia and the Western Pacific without the interference from Americans. Their plan to neutralize the Americans was to wipe out the U.S. Pacific fleet, beginning at Pearl Harbor. After Pearl Harbor, a similar attack on Alaska seemed likely to many." End quote. Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto is considered one of the most brilliant in naval warfare, according to several documentaries. A lot of thought and care went into his plan, but the Americans were able to decipher the radio code, and Admiral Chester Nimitz 
knew in advance to station a heavy naval presence at Midway, and they reached out to the villages of the islands and encouraged evacuation to civilian camps, which were actually long abandoned canneries in the southeast Alaskan area for their own safety. They would be 2,000 miles away from their home. They became the first American war refugees since the Civil War. In the rush to get them to safety instead of planning in advance, especially since they knew that the Japanese attack was highly possible, they forgot the basic needs of survival and many of the Aleutians would die of the wet, cold conditions of the empty, drafty canneries. One would say that there were only three toilets that were outdoors that were available for over 200 people staying there and only two faucets for water. But seeing as how it was in the middle of winter, those two faucets were often frozen. Meanwhile, quote, In March 1941, the Corps of Engineers built an airfield in Umnak. To keep it secret, they planned an elaborate deception, end quote. It was the season that the residents were gearing up for fishing anyway and opening up the canneries. They called this new airfield the Blair Packing Company and referred to it only by its fictitious name in every correspondence and radio messaging. The airfield was created by using 80,000 pieces of steel sheeting called Marston matting laid onto graded and treated soggy volcanic ash and grassland. Bill Talley would say, quote, we did it so effectively that the Japanese, when they made their attack, didn't even know of the airfield's existence, end quote. On April 1st, 1942, American planes could land at Umnak where they couldn't before. Also in March, the Americans and the Canadians began building the Alcan Highway. Alaska at War writes, quote, In just eight months, 10,000 men cut 1,645 miles of Pioneer Road. End quote. The Alcan cost $138 million and was built through the northern wilderness with temperatures plummeting to minus 60 degrees in the winter. The new roads would also help the Americans supply ships and planes to Russia for the Allied war in Europe. Ships and supplies were delivered from the tip of the Aleutians at Cold Bay as part of the Lease Lend program, keeping the Russians supplied while they fought with Germany. Since the Americans had gotten a heads-up on the Japanese attack, they were steadily on the lookout for Japanese aircraft. When they did finally see the invaders, they couldn't attack, because the weather and fog were so bad the American planes had to turn back. On June 3, 1942, it happened. The Japanese Imperial Navy made the initial attack. 32 Japanese planes took off from carriers standing by and dropped bombs on Dutch Harbor. On the first day of the attack, the radio communications to the quote-unquote Blair Packing Company at Umnak just happened to break down due to weather. But on the second day, the fighter pilots at Umnak took to the skies. They flew head-on into the Japanese planes, killing several by shooting their fuel tanks, causing them to crash into the icy waters. The damage could have been worse, but thanks to the brutal weather and fog, we only lost a few gas tanks, several buildings, including Navy barracks, and an old transport ship. But somehow, when the surviving Japanese returned to the carrier ships, 
they felt emboldened as they went forward with their plans to occupy Atu and Kiska. General Masataki Okeyuma would say, quote, In the Aleutians we planned to attack the Dutch harbor and occupy Atu and Kiska. We wanted air bases in the Aleutians and on Midway so we could intercept any American planes trying to attack Japan. Atu Island lies near the western end of the Aleutian Island chain, about 740 miles to the west of Dutch Harbor on Unalaska Island, at the chain's eastern end and approximately 650 miles from Paramushiro in the Japanese-controlled Kerr Isle Islands group. Atu is the most distant island from the mainland mass of Alaska. It is about 38 miles long and 14 miles wide with an area of 344.7 square miles. And like most of the Aleutian Islands, it is mountainous and barren. It's a small village with a few homes for about 45 indigenous Aleuts and one American couple, Mr. and Mrs. Charles Foster Jones. This brings us to June 7, 1942. The Japanese plant their flag on Atu. The bad news is, I mean, worse than Japan claiming American soil, is when the government tried to get all the inhabitants off the islands, they did not reach Atu in time. The Japanese got there too quickly. At first, the Etu people didn't know what was happening and offered to feed the surprise guests and even offered to teach them what they could eat from the water. The children would come up and play and hug them. Not long, though, the people, the Aleuts, were taken into custody as prisoners of war and sent to Hokkaido. Etta Jones would be taken to a hotel in Yokohama, Japan, but her husband, Charles Foster Jones, would never be seen again. She and the Aleuts and the Australian prisoners were eventually taken to a prison war camp and wouldn't be released until 1945. The Aleuts were not treated like military prisoners, but still had to work while under guard. Sadly, more than half of those taken from Atu died while in Japan, probably from tuberculosis. Most of what was happening over in the tiny island was not really known. The government and War Department did not realize their people had been kidnapped. It was only about six months after the attack on Pearl Harbor, and America was still reeling about that, and we were forced to start concentrating major efforts toward the war already in full swing in Europe. This allowed the Japanese to sneak in and get as comfortable as they could on such an unforgiving place. As we will see over and over, Almost as if another character in the story is the weather. It is brutal and moody. It is hard and it doesn't care what side you are fighting for. The winds, the rain, the blizzard, the slog of slippery vegetation. It would be the cause of many deaths all on its own. George L. McGarrigal, author of Aleutian Islands, the U.S. Army Campaign of World War II, would write, quote, while spared the Arctic climate of the Alaskan mainland to the north, the Aleutians are constantly swept by cold winds and often engulfed in dense fog. The weather becomes progressively worse in the western part of the chain, but all the islands are marked by craggy mountains and scant vegetation. End quote. 
Okeyuma, who was part of the Japanese fleet, would recall, quote, The fog was so thick we couldn't even see the vessel that was right next to us. The waves were very high, and even aircraft carriers had trouble navigating. End quote. The Japanese were well supplied, and it looked like they were going to stay for a while on both Kiska and Atu. They built fortifications and set up defense strategies and bunkhouses that mimicked the homes already present. They dug holes and bunkers. They had food and clothes and games. They had ammunition, mortars, and cannons. Before long, they became familiar with almost every inch of the island. The Japanese troops who were set onto the two islands were informed to quote unquote dig in. They were required to hold the American soil at all cost. End quote. The Japanese Navy was able to keep the troops well supplied to keep them safe, warm, and well fed as they held their ground and prepared for the long winter ahead. The Battle of Midway was still happening at this time, but Japan ended up suffering pretty badly. Four of Japan's six aircraft carriers with 332 planes and, quote, a third of Japan's pilots, end quote, were all lost. Japan would not recover from this pivotal point in the war. Meanwhile, Japan wrote home that their plan for diverting the American troops at Midway was a success, and they promised a great victory because they've gained footing in the Aleutian Islands. The Alaska at War documentary writes, quote, Some have suggested that the Americans should have simply ignored the Japanese on Kiska and Atu and let them try to survive hundreds of miles from home under some of the most hostile conditions in the world. But on June 11, 1942, the day after the Japanese were discovered on Kiska, the instinctive reaction of the Americans was to strike back. End quote. Quote, For the first air attack against an enemy ever on American soil, the 11th Air Force had only six newly arrived bombers with very green crews ready to fly. From their new base at Cold Bay, the young men flew the 1,200 mile round trip to bomb the new enemy, perhaps to die. End quote. The new inhabitants of Kiska got to work right away to build anti aircraft foundations for their cannons. So even as they dropped bombs, They had to be careful about return fire. One of the Japanese ships that dropped them off at Kiska still happened to be in the harbor, and just in time for the American bombers. When the bombers had to turn back, there were Navy planes to pick up where they left off to continue the attack. They were apparently slow and not as precise, but definitely kept the Japanese from peeking their heads out too often. Then the heavy bombers of the 11th Air Force stepped up to the plate and rained all kinds of firepower down on the Japanese. Alaska at War says, quote, The 1,200 mile round trip from Umnak to Bomb Atu and Kiska was taking its toll on the number of planes lost to foul weather and overtaxed crews. End quote. They needed an airfield closer to their target. This meant they needed a closer access to the smaller island. And decided to build one in the inhospitable island of Adak. It was only two hours from Kiska, but they were going to have to get creative in building a landing strip since the terrain was not level at all. B. Talley would say, quote, We found a lagoon which would be drained at every tide as the tide went out and be refilled, of course. 
we built a tidal gate across the front of it, automatic, so that when the water went out, it would flow, and then when the tide came in, it would not refill. End quote. Brilliant! Despite the experts saying it couldn't be done, or if there was a way it would take months, this airfield was built on a lagoon in just two weeks. They had no time to lose, not knowing what their uninvited guests were doing on American soil. They knew it couldn't be good. What they didn't know at the time is that even though they had supplies of food and clothing, their strategies were slowed because of inadequate equipment. They decided they too needed an airstrip on the northern side of Kiska Bay. All they had at their disposal were, quote, picks, shovels, and pushcarts, end quote. While all this building was happening on these tiny islands, which no one really had paid attention to for years, the American and Canadian Navy were working on closing the gap that allowed the Japanese to receive their supplies. They began getting into place to, quote, seize control of the sea around the islands, end quote. The Japanese, of course, were completely dependent on their ships to supply their needs and to be able to even survive in the harsh, unwelcoming terrain of Atu and Kiska. It became a top priority, therefore, to halt those supplies and starve them out if need be. And while the U.S. may have been concerned with Japan sneaking farther into Alaska, they might have wanted to make their life harder by blocking the airway. Military historian Al Hemingway says, quote, Their real purpose was purely psychological, driving out the Japanese occupying American soil, even if that soil was as desolate as Kiska and Atu. End quote. We had boats and even submarines that would patrol from a base at Dutch Harbor. All the newer, more fancier equipment were needed at other areas of conflict, so the old-timers were dusted off and brought in for duty. 400 miles west of Attu, on March 26, 1943, Admiral Charles McMorris and his two cruisers plus a few destroyers intercepted a Japanese convoy. The Japanese were being escorted by ships from another fleet, and they outnumbered the Americans by double. There was a battle that lasted for three and a half hours and is still known as the last major naval battle fought without aircraft carriers. The Americans were able to disable the gunnery control aboard their flagship, the Nachi, while our biggest cruiser, the Salt Lake City, was taken out completely. Under the cloud of smoke and weather, the convoy turned tail and steadily and urgently made its way in the opposite direction back towards Japan. They feared additional bombing from the land since they were in within range from ADAC and its brand new airfield, and the Japanese themselves were almost out of ammunition. Better to run now and live to fight another day, right? Well, little did they know that the Americans could not have set off bombs from ADAC if they wanted to. Thanks to the freezing temperatures, the bombs were literally frozen to the ground. The neighbors from Canada came over to help protect the small islands by way of anti-submarine patrols over the Gulf of Alaska, fearing a submarine raid might happen, but none materialized. James S. Russell would say, quote, And that was really the last serious attempt they made to run with a convoy through the two islands, end quote. At first, Admiral Kincaid wanted to go after the planted Japanese troops in Kiska. 
General DeWitt suggested using the 35th Infantry Division since these guys had experience with the illusions and were aware of the weather and the terrain, which in and of themselves presented almost like a second enemy they had to fight against. But the War Department thought otherwise, and instead sent over the 7th Infantry Division to fight. In February 1943, the Americans decided to go after the Japanese who were making themselves quite comfortable on Atu instead of Kiska at the moment. By going after the end island, Atu, it would leave Kiska cut off from supply and reinforcements. This would allow the Americans to more or less swoop in and take the island back. Kincaid would say that he hoped by attacking the furthest island would, quote, leave Kiska high and dry surrounded by American forces, end quote. Kincaid, however, was under the impression that there were only around 500 soldiers hiding out on Atu. He figured it would be a three-day campaign at most. Oh, was he wrong. Atu was currently entertaining around 2,600 Japanese troops, and they had been there long enough that they knew the island and had set up strategic fortifications complete with mortars, automatic weapons, and artillery. Admiral Thomas Kincaid decided to greet them with 11,000 soldiers, and, just as an extra boost, he also sent along three battleships, a light carrier, six cruisers, 19 destroyers, and a few other ships he could gather up along the way. Eleven months after the Japanese occupied Kiska and Atu in May of 1943, they finally faced off with the enemy. This battle would be documented as one of the bloodiest battles of the Pacific War. The American troops would come onto the island from both the opening at Holtz Bay and Massacre Bay. They were hoping to force the Japanese into a valley in the center of the island called Chichikov Valley. Leave it to America to Americanize the idea of supporting the arts and creatives. In America's history, patronage was found in the arts, but is most commonly remembered in the forums of politics. It was termed the spoils system. And this is where the old and the new, the arts and the political sciences, cross. In thanks to patronage in politics, those running for office would promise favors to those who would help finance their campaigns. And those favors were apparently only expected if the person won the campaign. Which is why, when you donate to many places these days, there is a give and take. When you give your monetary support, the creative, or politician, gives back. Bag of Bones podcast offers five levels with varying amounts of spoils, such as extra content, free merch, discounted merch, and other ways to make you feel inclusive and appreciated for every monetary gift bestowed on this creative endeavor. I am so thankful for every single patron who has signed on to propel the Bag of Bones podcast into the future that I am happy to give back. Some say we give too much, but in truth, it could never be enough in my mind to match my gratitude. So if you're ready to back this historical podcast, please head over to patreon.com and choose your level of support. And in addition to your spoils, I promise I will shake all the hands and kiss all the babies and who knows, even bring about world peace.
D-Day, May 11th. Al Hemingway of Warfare History wrote, quote, In the early morning hours of May 11, 1943, the silhouettes of two submarines silently rose to the surface in the icy cold waters off the coast of Attu, an island in the Aleutian chain. The vessels were the USS Norwal and the USS Nautilus, and they were carrying nearly 250 men from the Provisional Scout Battalion of the 7th Infantry Division. Captain William H. Willoughby, leader of the group, gathered his soldiers at the rear of the sub, and they quietly inflated their rubber boats for the ride to the shore. As the subs descended, the water rose, freeing the rafts. When the pair of vessels slipped away, the infantrymen started paddling toward their objective. The battle for Attu was about to commence. End quote. Alaska at War writes, quote, Three regiments of infantry, four battalions of artillery, plus combat engineers, medical companies, and other supporting units were put on board ships for Attu. In addition to the complement of cruisers and destroyers and the light aircraft carrier Nassau, the battleships Nevada, Idaho, and Pennsylvania were called upon to give the naval bombardment additional punch, end quote. The Americans were ready to play out their plan of attack, but the weather had other plans. The air was thick with fog, and it was dark. Visibility was near zero. The Americans were caught in their landing crafts trying to find the entrances to the beach, but could barely see their hand in front of their face. They floated and circled about for more than seven hours waiting for the fog to lift. It was cold and damp, and they could wait no more. Either they had to make their move or go back to the transports to try again another day. Luckily, before they gave up completely, they were able to be guided safely around the severe rocks to land on the beach by short-range radar-equipped destroyer, the USS Phelps. They were basically driving blind, completely dependent on the radar. The boats were able to pull up safely on the beach and, surprisingly, encountered no resistance, which is shocking to me because, after watching the films, they were not quiet about their landing at all. After landing, they realized they had only less than 100 feet of open space before they had to face cliffs. Even though this made the perfect theater for an ambush, all was quiet. There seemed to be no enemy activity. Those who landed on Massacre Bay faced some of the same eerie silence. They were able to move further inland and did come across two Japanese 20mm cannons, but they were thankfully unmanned. But it was a false sense of security. The Japanese definitely knew they were there, and this would be a tactic, looking back, that they used frequently. From Warfare History Network, quote, The impossible and erratic weather of the Aleutians would play a huge part in the upcoming battle, not only in compounding the difficulty for the Americans in securing their objectives on the island, but also in making it extremely difficult to get supplies to the advancing infantry. End quote. Deeper inland, it was getting dark, and they knew they had to stop for the night. Floating around on the dark sea really ate up a lot of their daylight hours. They had been slogging through snow on top of muskeg, which I found out is a, quote, swamp or bog consisting of water and partially dead vegetation frequently covered with moss, end quote. 
They were getting stung in their faces with snow blowing angrily at them from every direction, and their equipment kept getting stuck in this boggy, swampy terrain in the wrong boots, making it treacherous and slippery. Quote, the guns of Battery C, 48th Field Artillery Battalion, were soon mired in the unforgiving slime. End quote. They were digging trenches in which to sleep in for the night under a mist of freezing rain and were only able to dig a few feet before the ground was too frozen for a shovel to penetrate. They tried to rest, praying for daylight. The Japanese, having been there for a bit, feeling pretty confident, even though they were grossly outnumbered, probably because they got a good night's sleep in their warm and cozy barracks. Just to add extra aggravation to the already tired American soldiers, the Japanese snipers who had the high ground would send a volley of bullets down to their enemies. Not that they would reach them necessarily, but it sure does interrupt an already faint slumber. While America had a lot more soldiers than the Japanese, the men that were sent on this mission had absolutely no training under these conditions, nor the gear to protect themselves either. One soldier, Ted Asoski, would recall, quote, We couldn't keep dry. They gave us leather boots, and they gave us a little heavier jacket and a little heavier pants, and your feet would swell up after being wet. If you had your shoes off for more than ten minutes, you couldn't put them back on because your feet were hurting, end quote. Apparently, there was a huge disagreement, and the weather conditions of the islands were largely underestimated, so the wrong gear was ordered for the troops. Major General Albert E. Brown commanded the 7th and refused the advice of DeWitt and others who were more familiar with the area. Rumor has it that Brown even refused a flyover so he could see the terrain for himself before sending his men in blind and arguing with those more experienced than himself. The result? Our side lost more men and had more casualties due to swollen feet, frostbite, gangrene, and the brutal weather and terrain than at the hands of Japanese weapons. Having been there for so long, the Japanese had scouted as much of the area as they could and were able to make calculated assumptions of where the Americans might be able to come from to form an attack they managed to stay one step ahead for a good long time. With every little step the soldiers would take in any direction, they were met with gunfire. They would attempt to push forward, but were continuously met with artillery and mortars forcing the soldiers to take cover every few inches, making no headway at all. Brian Garfield writes, quote, Japanese entrenchments dominated all approaches. The Americans had to cross open slopes with no cover at all. The Japanese guns were linked along the summits at the military crest a few feet below the skyline. Fog hid the Japanese while it revealed the American lines, and even when the fog thinned, the Japanese used smokeless powder which couldn't be seen. End quote. Not even overhead missions could see where the Japanese positions were to help the infantry. The fog was so thick, the pilots couldn't see anything. Infantry veteran Todd Osowski said, quote, It felt like you were going against a wall. You'd move up inch by inch. You didn't advance too fast, end quote. The 7th Division were completely out of their element since they had been training in California, expecting to be sent to North Africa. Imagine their surprise. 
Military historian Brian Garfield would write in his book, The Thousand Mile War, World War II in Alaska and the Aleutians, quote, During the next five grueling days, these men would batter the high ground with constant frontal attacks and gain no ground, end quote. And this is where that American strength would display itself once again. You hear story after story about how, despite the odds of any battle, the American soldier will not give up, will not give in, will continue forward. And they did, inch by inch. In spite of their frozen feet and relentless attacks, they knew they couldn't retreat. They had to keep on the attack. Captain Willoughby would write, quote, Since we couldn't sleep at night, we weren't about to let the enemy sleep. We kept up a din around the clock so that they wouldn't divert any forces away from us. End quote. The Warfare Network writes, quote, The 17th Infantry had pushed the enemy back only to be hit with a savage counter-assault. Grenades were tossed at close range and Japanese soldiers rushed the American positions. Men were bayoneted and shot before they could signal for help. One soldier was thrown in the air from the concussion of a grenade blast, losing his boots in the process. End quote. After nine days of fighting and surviving, fighting and surviving, fighting and surviving, the Japanese knew they were running out of time. Desperate last ditch measures made by the Japanese, jumping from their hidden locations, led to a lot of hand to hand bloody bayonet combat. On the one day the sun came out, the bombers were immediately overhead trying to help out the infantry. They were tired and ready to go home. At one point, the 32 infantry was held up by Japanese machine guns. Private First Class Joe Martinez stepped out from his comrades with a Browning automatic and began firing. One eyewitness would recall, quote, he stood there, it seemed like for an hour, exposed, wide open, and loaded, and fired until the magazine was empty. He loaded two or three times, and then we heard it, a kind of a crack thump. Martinez fell backwards toward us, end quote. Martinez was fatally shot in the head, but not before he was able to disrupt the steady fire and kill five Japanese gunners. PFC Joe Martinez from New Mexico would be the only recipient of the Medal of Honor for the Battle of Achu. May 20th, Colonel Yamasaki would send a message to the higher command of their circumstances. Quote, the enemy air force bombed and strafed while the naval guns shelled our troops which sustained heavy casualties. None of the officers and soldiers were at any time discouraged or demoralized. On the contrary, they are firmly determined to die on Attu in battle in order to defeat the enemy. End quote. In truth, Colonel Yamasaki felt all along that he would not be leaving the island of Attu alive. He knew the next round of provisions were supposed to arrive this very month, but didn't know the waterways had been blocked, making it impossible for his resources to reach him. He believed it would be a fight to the death. I'm glad he settled into that outcome because, after two weeks, the American soldiers were able to shift from going straight up to circling around, connecting with other infantry units, and were able to surround the Japanese. There were fewer than 800 men. The Japanese, even though they were still very much aware of the Bushido Code, which would forbid any type of surrender. 
Dark Docs describes this as a set of traditional rules of conduct that emerged from the samurai warriors in the 12th century. Surrender is considered the utmost dishonor, which pretty much left them with nothing but drastic options. They decided their best of the drastic options was to charge through the American line at what they could see as their weakest point, a final banzai. May 29th. Yamasaki had hoped that their speed striking at the wee hours of morning and, I guess, just the sheer daring would catch the Americans off guard just long enough for them to break through and make a mad dash to acquire the American stash of ammunition and supplies. It's considered to be one of the most desperate, quote-unquote, bonsai moments of the Pacific War. They knew it was a desperate plan, but thought it was the best way to honor their country and die fighting. Long before sunrise, the men moved quietly, undetected. At 3.30 a.m., they reached the encampment of many soldiers that were still sleeping or attempting to eat breakfast. They broke the silence with a shrill cry of bonsai and dove through the camp bayonets drawn, slashing and shooting their way through. The Americans were caught completely unprepared. Men were slaughtered where they lay, and others were able to return fire. The U.S. position was momentarily broke. The noise alerted the engineers further away, and they assembled, expecting the worst. Yamasaki would send a final message to Japan's headquarters, saying, quote, Most of our positions on the front line have been captured by the enemy, and today we barely are able to hold the remaining positions. The withdrawn force will attack the enemy and will display the true glory of the Imperial Army in carrying out the final attack. End quote. Alaska at War would write, quote, Yamasaki then ordered his code books and wireless sets destroyed so he never received a reply. End quote. The reply that was sent to them would read as follows. Quote, we received reports of your resolute determination and fine morale and were filled with deep gratitude. We wish you calm sleep as the pillar of the northern defense. End quote. It was early in the morning. The skies were still dark and the fog had not yet lifted. The small Japanese battalions would go about yelling and firing their weapons, quote, scattering the first group of Americans they encountered, end quote. They kept running without looking back and were feeling more confident with every step until they came to the edge of a hill they would need to travel down to get to the beach. But there was the American engineer encampment. One soldier would recall, quote, they had grenades wrapped around their foreheads or around their chest. It was just a wild situation. Major James Bush, who was the encampment's commander, had his engineers take up arms and prepare for fight. The engineer units were sent to the Aleutian Islands to figure out how to build new bases in this most inhospitable area. They had no idea they would be defending their lives in hand-to-hand -hand combat with 800 crazy Japanese soldiers with no hope of survival. The Japanese would rush forward trying to break through the lines, but were beaten back time and time again. Brigadier General Archibald Arnold instructed his men to toss grenades at the attackers. Men fell, but the rest just kept on coming. 
handguns to hand-to-hand combat ensued until 37mm cannon was able to be put in action. The Japanese would pull back and then attack again all day. Bodies littered the snow-covered valley. By nightfall, the exhausted enemy had disappeared into hiding. Colonel Yamasaki was killed, his sword still gripped tightly in his hand as he fell leading the attack. The hundreds of remaining Japanese troops, seeing their leader fall and realizing that they were once again surrounded, took their own lives with honor. There is a sign that still stands that reads, quote, Engineer Hill. This hill was so named in honor of the 50th Engineer Regiment Combat, who repulsed the last desperate counterattack launched by the Japanese. Here, early on the morning of the 29th of May, 1943, the bloodiest engagement of the battle was fought. End quote. All but 29 of the 2,600 Japanese battalions stationed on the island died. The Americans lost 549 to battle, 318 to suicide and accidents, 1,148 were wounded, and over 1,200 suffered from frostbite. Atu was back under American control, but at a cost. Quote, the Army and Navy were humiliated by the costly mistakes committed during the campaign and did not want to face public scrutiny. The sacrifices made by the brave soldiers were played down by the ministries of war propaganda, end quote. And military historian Brian Garfield would add, quote, The price of weather-beaten Etu had been high. In proportion to the number of troops engaged, it would rank as the second most costly American battle in the Pacific theater, second only to Iwo Jima, end quote. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a 5-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you. The 5,400 Japanese still on Kiska were listening to the battle unfold as it was happening on the radio reports. They knew they would be next and would begin preparing for the worst. Toru Kobayashi was on Kiska would recall, quote, At that time, most believed it was a sacred time to sacrifice your life for the country. But, being newly married, it was a great dilemma for me since my first son was born in January of 1943. About this time, we heard about the mass suicide on Etu, end quote. And, spoiler alert, he did not 
take his own life. In June, the Japanese were going to attempt an evaluation of the troops on Kiska by ship. But if you recall, we had every antique ship that could possibly still stay on top of the water patrolling the area. At some point, the Japanese ships were spotted by radar and we gave chase, but literally couldn't find them because of the dense fog. But Americans being Americans, we fired out into the darkness at what the radar said would and should be there. We probably took out the Pacific version of Loch Ness Monster and didn't even know it. When the smoke cleared and the sun finally came out, there was no wreckage found. No dinosaurs either, for that matter. But since we light up the night sky burning through a lot of ammo and ton of fuel, we had to leave the area unguarded to go back and reload. Waiting in the fog a mere 400 miles away, the Japanese saw their opportunity and snuck right on in to get to Kiska. On July 29th, just when they were about to give up hope, rescue ships were seen approaching the bay. Toru Kobayashi would say that he believed that the souls that gave their life on Atu made it possible for the lives on Kiska to be saved. He'd say, quote, We are very thankful. End quote. The embarrassing part of all this is that the Americans didn't know the island had been completely evacuated, so we just kept bombing it for an additional three weeks. They assumed that the lack of activity was the Japanese laying low trying to lull them into a false sense of security. I mean, it's worked before, so they were taking no chances. After the three weeks of no return fire, 33,000 American and Canadian troops decided it was time to assault the beaches. The Canadians pulled in first. It was quiet. There was no instant attack, but they had come to recognize this tactic they proceeded forward. Wikipedia writes, quote, Despite the lack of Japanese presence, Allied casualties during the invasion nevertheless numbered close to 200, either from bad weather, Japanese booby traps, or friendly fire. As a result of the brief friendly fire engagement between U.S. and Canadian forces, 28 American and 4 Canadians were killed. There were an additional 130 casualties from Trenchfoot, and the destroyer USS Abner Reed hit a mine resulting in 87 casualties. End quote. They finally realized they were alone and began to go through the fortifications left behind. They found food, clothing, notes, games. They even found a grave of an American pilot with a marker written in English. It read, quote, Sleeping here, a brave air hero who lost youth and happiness for his motherland. July 25th, Nippon Army. End quote. The Aleutians continued to be valuable real estate and were used for bombing raids against the Kurile Islands on the northern side of Japan. On these islands, it was a role reversal of the Aleutians. The Japanese army and navy were strong here and could easily hold their own space, but the Americans were just annoying enough they couldn't get supplies out and were essentially prisoners of their own island. They couldn't get more soldiers out to the main battles of the Pacific where they were needed and Japan was showing wear and tear because of it. The soldiers at the base of the Aleutians were all but forgotten for the remainder of the war, but those that lived there battled for their life on a daily basis because of the weather. 
basic survival should have been considered acts of valor. Half of the original inhabitants of Vatu died during their imprisonment. The rest would return to their homeland to find it destroyed. Following the war, the Japanese occupation site on the island is now a National Historic Landmark and part of the Aleutian Islands World War II National Monument. The island is also a part of the Alaska Maritime National Wildlife Refuge. Side note, it's been said that the ancestors of those who died at Attu would return for several years following the war to honor their family members. A peace memorial was also placed on the battle site of Attu. Because of the American soil that got tangled up in World War II, Alaska had roads and airfields and communication that would help it to grow into the populace it is today, much to the original Aleut's chagrin. The aggressive landscape of Alaska has reclaimed most of the areas that were exposed to the battles of World War II, but they are trying desperately to preserve what they can from what was left behind. On Kiska, the evidence of war is still clearly visible. Time and erosion has yet to undo the barrage of bombing that took place as the damage redesigns the landscape for decades. Numerous equipment dumps, tunnels, some concrete-lined, Japanese gun emplacements, shipwrecks, and other war relics can all be found, all untouched since 1943. In 1983, a memorial plaque was placed on Kiska by the 87th Mountain Infantry Regiment, inscribed, quote, to the men of Amphibious Task Force 9, who fell here August 1943, placed here August 1983 by 87th Mountain Infantry Regiment, end quote. And I have one last bit of Aleutian history. Let me take a quick break and come right back. Hello everyone, it's time for a Bag of Bones sponsor break, and this one highlights Lumi Deodorant. But today, we are not talking about their amazing deodorant products. If you didn't know already, Lumi also creates body wash. Makes sense, right? And you'll be happy to know that the same care that goes into the deodorant carries over to the body wash line as well. Lumi's acidified body wash is clinically proven to work three times better than ordinary soap. Lumi has a low pH, making it perfect for sensitive skin, and it eliminates odor in all the places promoting healthier, softer skin. If you haven't already tried the body wash, consider using the Bag of Bones link in the show notes to give it a try. It has a money-back guarantee and free shipping with any order of $25 or more. Plus, you help support an awesome podcast. Hint, hint. If you know you stink or you take showers regularly, this product is for you. Give it a try today. Click the link in the show notes. On July 30, 1942, all communication to the submarine USS Grunion was lost. Grunion's commanding officer, Lieutenant Commander Mannert L. Abel, was sent to the Aleutian Islands to patrol the routes between Attu and the Japanese Empire. Then the submarine was reassigned to north of Kiska, while here, from July 20th to July 30th, it came under fire and reported firing on enemy destroyers sinking three and attacking other unidentified enemy ships near the edge of Kiska. But then, the radios went silent, and no one could locate the sub. 
Abel was awarded the Naval Cross for his heroism posthumously. But then, in 2002, the sons of Abel, Brad, Bruce, and John, set about on a mission to find the missing submarine. By August of 2007, after much research, a remotely operated vehicle equipped with a high-definition camera was able to capture video footage and posts from the wreckage. The USS Grunion is lying at a depth of about 3,200 feet, and the very cold water and lack of significant currents has preserved much of the wreckage and its final resting place was less than a mile below the ocean's surface. Bruce Abel, the eldest son, would say, quote, This discovery has come about through a stream of seemingly improbable events. It's like we won the lottery ten times in a row. It's so dramatic to see the underwater photo and be certain it was, in fact, Grunion. Not only is this announcement important for the families of the crew members, it is also important for the Navy and the country. End quote. Unfortunately, the cause of Grunion's sinking remains a mystery. No matter what the cause, the end result was the loss of all hands. As the Naval Historical Center noted, quote, No amount of analysis or speculation will change or alter the fact that families lost fathers, husbands, uncles, and brothers. The Navy and the nation will always be grateful for their service and their sacrifice, end quote. The service, hosted by the USS Cod Memorial, honored the 70 crew members killed when the USS Grunion was sunk near the Aleutian Islands on or about July 30, 1942. John Abel would say, quote, To provide ourselves and the families this closure, it's icing on the cake. The memorial service is a symbolic event. We've discovered family we didn't know we had. Not only is this an honor for all of us, it increases the feeling of community we've been able to achieve, end quote. At Pearl Harbor, October 2008, Rear Admiral Douglas McAnany announced, quote, We are very grateful to the family of Grunion's commanding officer, Lieutenant Commander Mannert L. Abel, for providing the underwater video footage and pictures that allowed us to make this determination. We also appreciate the efforts of the USS Cod Submarine Memorial for their assistance in this matter. We hope this announcement will give closure to the families of the 70 crewmen of Grunion. End quote. Thanks for joining me this week for our latest episode. The military episodes are not my area of expertise, but I am nudged regularly to include them. I hope I do them justice reporting the details accurately. I am hugely patriotic, and I hope it seeps through. If you want more Bag of Bones episodes of perhaps the international flavor, I would love to encourage you to join us over at our Patreon page. Even the smallest contribution would help keep the podcast running smoothly as I am steadily trying to work toward a commercial-free listening experience. I absolutely love researching and creating every episode for you. So if you have received any entertainment, knowledge, or I've just provided you with an acceptable way to avoid other things you're supposed to be doing, your secret is safe with me, would you please consider participating in our Patreon group? There are lots of gifts just waiting to be sent to you. Stickers, coffee mugs, t-shirts, discounted merch, and personal correspondence from me through the actual mail. 
who doesn't love happy mail? If you're curious or if you can't wait to join in, go to patreon.com and choose whatever level makes you the happiest. I can't wait to meet you on the inside. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created, researched, written, and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret. Edited by Katie Bougeret Caldwell. Music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. To become a patron, please look up Bag of Bones podcast at patreon.com for exclusive content and merch. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.